If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it out now and turn to 2 Thessalonians. And if you don't, um, we, keep, we keep Bibles in the, in the seats there. Um, there's also obviously Bible apps and things like that. But if you need a Bible uh, and you don't have one, you can take that with you and you can have that. That could be our gift to you. But today we're in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 and our text is going to be mostly 5 through 12, but I'm going to read 3 through 12. And while you're turning there, I'll just say uh, a big thank you to those of you who prayed who knew um, about it. Some of you did. I was, I was in Florida last week uh, to officiate at a funeral and speak at a church. And my, my grandmother passed away and I was able to speak at her funeral. And uh, it, was a really good, it was a really good, fruitful ministry time. And I'm really thankful, really thankful for Pastor Bert Newman, who stepped in really at the last minute. He had I think three days uh, head knowledge or, you know, knowing that he was going to preach last Sunday. And uh, I, heard, I heard really good things about the entire service and the, uh, the, the great members meeting at night and all of that. And so really thankful to the Lord and thankful to be back with you this morning. So thank you for praying if you prayed. So Second Thessalonians and our text today, and what we're going to do now is, you know, we've been singing, we've been worshiping God with our, with, with, our, with our praise and our worship and our song, and we're going to continue to exalt in God right now just by opening his word and seeing how it applies to our life and how it should shape the way we think and live and love and all of those things. So Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12, it says, we, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the, and, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we also ourselves, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help right now. Lord, we pray to you, we, we come to you wanting to believe your word, wanting the word to shape our lives, to shape our viewpoint, to shape the way that we think, to shape our hope, to give us hope. And Lord, I, I pray that you would do those things through your word this morning. We, we pray together that your spirit would be moving unhindered in our hearts. Help us not to be resistant 
to what you want to teach us. Help us not to be distracted. Help us to not be apathetic. Lord, I pray that we would at once feel the weight of this and the hope that it gives us. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave here encouraged, encouraged to walk through this life, to do this week, to do this Christmas break for the college students who are leaving with our hope in you and our resolve just set to glorify you in, in our lives. Help me, I pray. I, uh, I, I need your help, Lord, as I impact your word. I pray that it would be clear to your people and you give me the strength to be able to preach this rightly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so I, I know that there are a few people out there who just simply enjoy the process. I think there are very few, but there are some people who enjoy digging and tilling and weeding and pruning and keeping the bugs away and fending the deer off and watering through all the dry spells here in the panhandle. There might be a few like that who, who enjoy working outside in the blazing heat to keep up with everything. But most people who plant vegetable gardens do it all because they know that when they're done, they're going to have vegetables, right? I think, I don't know. That's why I do it. Well, I don't really do it, do I? But <laughs> we have vegetables though. How is that? <laughs> they do that work and endure that hardship with their eye on something future. In fact, the reality of nearly everything we do, everything that hard that we do, we do with our eyes on something in the future, right? I mean, everything I can think of, we, we look forward to an outcome and we do that with hope and anticipation and that motivates us to do hard things, right? Like when we do hard things, we're looking forward to something. So people work out so that they will one day be strong. They diet so that they will one day be skinny. People train so that they will compete well. People paint their houses so that when they're done, their house will look nice, er, nicer. People go to college or trade school because they want to be helpful and have skills that are marketable. People write books so that one day they'll be read. Women endure the hardships of pregnancy and labor so that one day they will hold a baby. All hard work that I can think of looks forward with hope and anticipation to something future. And what I think this passage teaches us is that suffering, specifically Christian suffering, and enduring in that suffering with faith, looks forward with hope in a similar way to something in the future. But not a small outcome like vegetables or muscles or a, a grad degree, but to the awesome grace-filled reality of Christ's second coming, his second advent. Christians endure looking with faith and grace and glory and even the judgment of God. We, we look forward to these things knowing that they'll be revealed when Christ returns. That's what makes it okay. That's what makes it okay to suffer in this life. That's what makes it okay to lay down your life if that's what's called of you. We, it's why Christians can endure with faith and joy though they are often, though we are often persecuted and harmed by those who are offended by our faith or offended by our morals or just offended that we trust in Christ. Why we can have strength and resolve to continue even though the cost is high. What could possibly motivate you, Christian, to stand for Christ 
when the, when the cost is high, when it means your job, when it might mean your reputation, when it might mean your family, when it might mean your safety. Well, this passage tells us. Sadly, it's getting easier to speak about Christians suffering now in America and persecution in America. Because every year it seems like it's a little less abstract and theoretical and far off and more present. Do you know what I mean? More realistic. It's becoming less difficult to imagine an America that marginalizes and penalizes Bible-believing Christians who love and believe what the Bible teaches and hold to it and don't cave. Christians who simply believe the word of God and today they're called haters and bigots. Not for anything hateful that they've done. I mean, hopefully not for being haters, but for holding to what the Bible teaches. It's always been an issue. We won't worship the Baals of this age. We won't. We can't. We, we don't bow the knee to the culture. We, we cannot call evil good, and we cannot call good evil. And in that, we should expect persecution. Christians should expect persecution. As a pastor, honestly, one of my duties is to prepare you for such a reality. I would be derelict to not arm you with truth and hope that can get you through the suffering that is part and parcel of the life of faith, of life as a Christian between these two Advents. And that's why I chose this passage today as we celebrate the third week of Advent to give you hope and faith in a sure and wonderful future reality, a future grace. The second coming of Christ when Jesus is revealed from heaven. This reality gives us hope when things are rough. It motivates us to live for Christ each day. So this year for Advent, we've been focusing on the second Advent of Christ. As you may know, Advent, the word, means coming or arrival. Advent's the celebration of the coming of Christ. And we as a church, we, we have for many years, we've taken four weeks every year during the uptick to Christmas to focus on the coming of Christ. That, that reality that God in love has sent a savior, that Jesus has come into the world. But there are two advents of Christ revealed in God's word, not one. There's the advent that we typically focus on at Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, you know, the babe born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, worshiped by shepherds, visited by kings. The advent, when the son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, revealing God's glory to us, perfectly abiding by God's law, teaching us what God is like, and then being rejected and scorned and crucified, killed in our place and resurrected. That's the first advent of Christ. There's a second advent though, one that is still ahead for us right now, when Christ will be revealed from heaven on that last day and comes back with judgment and with grace. In the first advent, Jesus came to be judged in our place. There's a huge difference between the two advents. In the first advent, Jesus came to be judged in our place, to take God's judgment on himself that we earned. Punishing, the, the, the second time Jesus comes, he doesn't come to be judged by God, but to be judged. 
executing the righteous judgment of God, punishing those who disobey the gospel, glorifying all those who do believe the gospel. So during this Advent season, we're focusing this year on the second Advent. And really the purpose is to help us do life in this age between the Advents. So the passage before us today does two things. It gives us hope and, a, and reasons to endure as we suffer as Christians. And second, it motivates Christian living just in general in light of the second coming of Christ. And that's what I'm hoping God will do for us today. Motivate us and give us reason, hope, and future grace as we suffer. I'm praying that it will strengthen your resolve to live boldly for Christ. Boldly this week, boldly as you head home for Christmas, I'm praying that it will help you to focus your eyes on the hope and the grace that will be revealed when Jesus is revealed from heaven. So in verse five, Paul says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The this in that sentence, right, points back to something. I think it points, um, we have to wonder what is the evidence? Uh, And I think we can see it really clearly in verse four. So, Verse four says, therefore we, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfast faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So the evidence of the righteous judgment of God is the Christian's steadfastness in faith in all the persecutions and afflictions for Christ. So you gotta ask, how, how, does, how does their suffering and their endurance in that suffering serve as evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I think our first impulse on the ground, you know, just doing life is to see persecution and suffering as the opposite of that, right? I mean, that is when Christians suffer unjustly, it feels like things are not as they should be. And we wonder sometimes out loud about God's righteous judgment because these bad things are happening. It would be easy to see injustice all around and think, the righteous judgment of God is broken or missing, absent. Yet Paul calls it evidence that God's judgment is exactly as it should be. So how is that? This language is actually very, very similar to what Paul wrote to the Philippian believers who were also suffering. Let's read Philippians 1, 27 through 28 together. You can flip over there. Or I'll, we're going to display it. Only let, your, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And listen to this, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It's very similar passage, very similar in a lot of ways. God's righteous judgment that we see in 2 Thessalonians and here in Philippians 1 has two sides to it. On the one side, his judgment means destruction. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. For those who oppose the gospel, he says it in both places. And the very same judgment, the other side of that, it means salvation for those who do believe the gospel. So according to both of these passages, when those who don't obey the gospel persecute those who do, and when those who believe the gospel endure with faith, both sides simply prove 
the righteous judgment of God. In other words, endurance and faith demonstrate the fitness or rightness of salvation for one, the one who obeys the gospel and believes so strongly in Christ that he or she is willing to suffer. They, they will not deny Christ, even if it means hardship, even if it means loss for them. They would rather suffer loss, testifying to the grace of God in Christ and the hope that we have in him than to deny him, even though that makes things a lot easier or would make things a lot easier. That is evidence of God's righteous judgment. And on the other side of that, the one who so opposes Christ that he opposes and persecutes the one who loves Jesus and follows him, they simply demonstrate the righteousness of, just God's, of God's justice to one day punish them. Are you with me? The evidence will be clear. They did not love Christ. They did not love his appearing. They hated him. And they demonstrated that by hurting and sometimes killing those who love Jesus. In that way, persecution and suffering and the faithful endurance of it both all together in one package give evidence of the righteous judgment of God in both salvation and condemnation. Now, 2 Thessalonians flushes that out for us. There, there are two things that God considers just. We will unpack those two things. But before we do, let's note the timing and the event that marks the execution of God's judgment. You can see it in verses six and seven. It says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to, to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He's coming back, guys. That's when this judgment's gonna happen. The Lord will return. This is the second advent of Christ, Christ coming again. And this passage teaches us all about it. And as I mentioned before, this is different than his first advent. He's coming in a different way. In the first advent, the son of God comes as a babe lying in a manger. He's first, he's first revealed to shepherds, not kings. And the purpose of his coming is to fulfill God's law. And then to stand as a substitute in our place and to take our judgment for us, to take our sin, to take your sin and to take my sin onto his shoulders and die in our place. He did not come with a flaming sword. He did not come with angels. He did not come with vengeance. In the first advent, Jesus came to bear out judgment, bear our judgment. In the second advent, Christ does not come to be judged by God, but as I said, to be God's righteous judge, to execute God's righteous judgment. When he comes again, he comes with mighty angels. He comes with a flaming fire. That's good news for Christians who genuinely believe the gospel. And it is terrifying news to those who do not believe the gospel. You can see that in the two things that God considers just. Namely, to repay with affliction those who disobey the gospel and to grant relief or salvation to those who are afflicted. You know, if you read this carefully, you can get a pretty good idea of what hell is. It means at least two things. By the way, it's real. It means at least two things. First, as you can see in verse nine, it means eternal destruction. That does not mean ceasing to exist. It doesn't mean like being destroyed and then never being for all of eternity. The word eternal, eternally, like 
Eternal destruction means it's, it's much worse than just ceasing to exist. It means to be eternally, a destruction which will continue forever. It's beyond our comprehension. A, a, a state of destruction which will continue for eternity. It will continue. It's a state of being destroyed that never ends, that's never relieved. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But Paul doesn't even stop there. He, he says the second thing, about this in verse nine. The eternal destruction will happen away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. According to Paul, hell means absolute separation from God. I don't know what you think about heaven or what it will be like. Likely you have some thoughts about it. When you think of heaven, I don't know, maybe, maybe you think about a reunion with your lost loved ones. You may think of relief or like your struggles will end, your, your hardships will end, disease won't be a, a thing for you. Maybe you'll think of prosperity and not having any needs anymore, not carrying big debts and stresses, not having any sorrows. And I think, I think the Bible teaches those ideas. God wipes away every tear. But ultimately, heaven is being in the presence of God. Heaven is enjoying the most glorious being in the universe. Heaven is being with Christ. Being separated from God's presence is the very essence of hell. The terrifying picture of punishment I see in this passage is being destroyed for eternity and being separated from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Hell will be so horrible that those who are there will not even see God's glory or his gracious working. It means ultimate separation from God, which is ultimate punishment. So here's a quick definition for hell for you, if you want one, to help us grasp the horrible reality of it. Hell is being destroyed for all of eternity, away from the presence of God. You might not feel this right now, but the reality is that there is, no, there is nothing worse in the universe than that. And according to verse eight, it is the punishment awaiting those who, quote, do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. I think both of those are, are, are simple ways to, des, to describe those who are not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The command of the gospel, like, we're, if we're disobeying it, there's, there's a command there that we're disobeying, right? The command of the gospel is for sinners to believe and trust in Christ alone. To, to look away from ourselves, to look away from our good works, quote unquote. And to look to Christ and to his cross and to the empty tomb and to put all our hope in him. To disobey the gospel is to reject that command and the punishment of that disobedience, friends, is horrible beyond our imagination. And just as an aside, that reality, the reality of hell, ought to wake us up as Christians. It ought to wake us up to the urgency of evangelism and of missions and of outreach and of the plight of our neighbors what could be more urgent 
It's a more pressing need in this world than a lack of clean drinking water or pervasive poverty or the horror of human trafficking and so on. We, we care, we care as Christians for all of those things. Well, all of those urgent, the urgent needs, we, we care about all human suffering. That's what the love of Christ has done in our hearts, right? It's transformed us from being like callous to the suffering of others to care for the suffering of others. People who live in poverty and are trafficked and, and don't have clean drinking water and are racked by disease because of it. But we must feel a far more urgent need because of the reality of hell. That reality should make us more urgent for the gospel to go out. More urgent to support missionaries, more urgent to tell our neighbors, more urgent to like, like we ought to be so like awake to this reality that we're willing to be awkward to help people see the greatest news in the universe. And aside, that's just an aside for you. The truth here, though, is that there will be a day when the righteous judgment of God will be fully revealed and fully exercised. The evidence for the righteousness, the rightness of this judgment, it's all around us. God considers it just to punish those who disobey the gospel. And I want to ask you, all of you who are here today, I want you to think about this. I think you should think about this with urgency. Do you obey the gospel? The gospel commands all people to repent and turn, turn to, by faith to Christ. Is that you today? What does the evidence say for you? The second thing God considers just is to grant relief to those who are afflicted in Christ. Relief to those who believe the gospel. That's why we call Christ's second coming our blessed hope. Let's think about the two things. There's a lot of twos today. The two things he says about that blessed hope. First, it says that when Christ comes on that day, he will be glorified in his saints. And I know it's hard to understand what it means to be glorified or what it means to glorify God. I think one of the easiest ways for us to comprehend that notion, it's not everything about that notion, but it's not less than that. It's by the word display. If you want to understand what it means to glorify God, I think the word display is helpful. I think God's glory is the display of his character and his person and his might and his grace and his love and his justice. God is glorified when we display God, when we display those attributes of God, he is glorified. So for an example, when I am thankful for God's provision in my life, right? I, I, am, I am displaying that God is faithful to me and he is a provider and he is gracious and he's loving and that glorifies God. That displays him. So thankfulness is a way that Christians glorify God. God is glorified in the thankfulness of his people. When we show the love of Christ to others by helping them, we glorify Christ. We display him. We display his work in us. When Christ comes again, we will perfectly display Christ. Christ will, will, will come and he will be glorified in his saints who will at that time perfectly display him. That's the first thing. Second, when Christ comes again, 
he will be marveled at by all those who believe. Love that word, marvel. It's also in verse 10. We will see our Christ and he will be marvelous to behold. We will marvel. We, all who have believed Paul's testimony, I think that's shorthand for the gospel, all who have believed the gospel will marvel on that day. It will be a marvelous day. Of course, there's a contrast there, right? I mean, he's painting a contrast. Those who have obeyed the gospel will marvel at the display of God in Christ. And those who have not obeyed the gospel will be removed from that display. They will not see that display. One will marvel. One will not be able to see it. It's a marvelous and a terrible day. But marvelous for those who believe. Think of it. On that day, Christ will be glorified in us perfectly. What a great thought, right? Like, you know why he's not perfectly glorified in me today? Because there's sin here. And sometimes I fog up the display of God so that you can't see it. I do that with bad attitudes. I do that with all kinds of ways. I'm good at that, unfortunately. On that day, on that day, it will be crystal clear. No more sin to fog his image. He will be perfectly glorified. And he will now, and he will make our now weary and sometimes very weary hearts marvel at his glory. That's why we cry, come Lord Jesus, come. When we see the injustices of our world, when we see persecutions and trials, wars, hardships, suffering, when we see marriages lost, kids hurting, good decried, we cry, come, Lord Jesus. Come and grant relief to your people. Come and glorify yourself and your saints, those whom you by your, by your grace alone have made holy. Come and glorify yourself in us. Come, Lord Jesus, and let justice reign at last. Come and make us marvel. Oh, friend, how that ought to give you hope today. Is this practical truth? Do you think this is practical truth? Is it helpful for how we will do our day today or tomorrow or this week or Christmas break? I think it is. And I think that because of where Paul goes in verses 11 and 12. Look, look at Paul's prayer for them. It's not a disconnected prayer, right? He begins with, to this end, we pray for you. So in light of the second advent of Christ and what that means for you and for all the saints and even for all people of the world, whether judgment or salvation, we pray this for you. To this end, he prays. And look at the prayer. We should think about this for our lives. I think this prayer shows, shows us how our blessed hope shapes our Christian life. Paul prays basically for two things. First, he prays that God may make you worthy of your calling. Don't misunderstand that. Worthy can have a couple of different senses in the Bible. Worthy can mean deserving. Like when we say worthy is the lamb who is slain, we mean deserving. He's deserving. I don't think that's what it means here, although there's a sense in which God makes us worthy through Christ. I, but I don't think that's what he means here. I think here it means something more akin, and he uses it twice in this passage. You'll notice back in verse five, worthy of the kingdom of God, and here, worthy of our calling. 
I think it means something more akin to fitting or suitable. He makes us suitable. So like I said, I, I, I mentioned that I, I went back to Florida and I officiated at a funeral. It's something ministers often do. We officiate at funerals. Um, as I was getting ready for that funeral, I carefully thought about what I would wear, right? I, I, I didn't, it was Florida. I, I, I didn't go there in a Hawaiian shirt. Even though it was like 85 degrees, it would have been comfortable. The, the, the service was outside. I didn't go in a Hawaiian shirt and white pants. And the reason why, I mean, I, maybe some funerals have that, but it wouldn't have been fitting for that occasion with my grandmother. It wouldn't, have been, it wouldn't have been fitting, right? It would, it would have been like not suited to the occasion, not, not worthy. It wouldn't have been honoring to my, the memory of my grandmother. I dressed in a way that was worthy. I put a suit on, I put a tie on. Now that did not qualify me to officiate at that funeral. That's not what, other things did that. But I wanted to be there in a worthy manner, fitting and suitable for the occasion. And that's why I did that. And I think that's kind of the sense here, kind of it illustrates the sense here. God has called us to be his people. That's all by his grace. It's all through the work of Christ and what he has done. We're not worthy in the sense of deserving of God's grace. I mean, grace inherently cannot be deserved, right? That's why we call it grace. It's not, we're undeserving. It's unearned. Yet there is a way to live your life that is worthy of that calling that is suitable, and there's a way to live your life that is unsuitable. Do you follow? And Paul prays for God's grace in light of the second advent of Christ that, that, that we might be worthy of our calling. Friends, I think we should evaluate our lives. Are we living our lives in a worthy manner? Second, Paul prays that God might fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. It's, it's impossible to miss the theology of God's enabling power in this prayer, right? It's all through it. I mean, it's a prayer. So prayer by itself is, is the thought of God's enabling. We pray because we want God to do something, right? That just praying is saying, I need God to do the work, right? That's what praying is. When you pray for somebody, you're praying that God would work but it's everywhere in this prayer. Prayer, he's asking that, that God would work in his people and do all of these things. That God would make them worthy. That God would fulfill their resolve for good. And that God would fulfill every work of faith. And then he adds, just for good measure, by his power. Paul's been thoroughly impressed by the truth that without Christ, we can do nothing. We need God's power and his grace for everything. Paul is praying in light of the second advent of Christ that God would do an awesome work in his people. And in verse 12, we see why he's praying this way. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses before this, Paul wrote that on that day, the day that Christ returns, he will be glorified in us. That's our future glorification. That's our final glorification. And in verse 12, he prays for the here and now of that. Do you see? I mean, he, he's not talking about future glorification in verse 12. He's talking about right now. That, that, that 
that in the name of our Lord Jesus, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. This is like the fruit of walking worthy of him. Right now, the blessed hope of future grace, our looking to Christ's second advent, spurs on in us a desire for Christ to be glorified in us now, for Christ to be on display in the lives of his people, in the lives of his saints. It's such a practical message. And I think you should take it home with you and think about, man, is Christ glorified in my life today? Like, am I living that kind of life worthy of his calling? Not apathetic to him, but worthy, suitable. Friends, let's prepare to suffer well with our eyes on Christ and our hope in him. If we are despised and rejected for the name of Christ, and I know that some of you have experienced that in some measure, know that it is simply evidence of God's righteous judgment. There will be a day when all is set in order. Christ will come with angels and flaming fire and he will punish those who disobey the gospel and he will glorify himself in those who believe. So take heart, Christian. There is a marvelous day coming. In light of that day, may God fulfill our every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. May he be glorified in us and us in him in increasing measure until that blessed day. You know what? You know why you can suffer? You know why you can, you can follow Christ even though the cost is high? You know why we can do that as a church? Because we know how the story ends. It ends in a marvelous way. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for me, myself. I pray for all of these here. That you would help us to live a life that is worthy of our calling that you would help us to obey the gospel, trust in Christ. Lord, I pray for your help today that we would not continue on unthoughtful of how the story ends, but that the way the story ends would give us faith and hope and joy no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.